in Colossians chapter 4. I wanted to give you a little bit of a taste of what we did while we were on our, our trip uh, to Asia a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were able to teach the book of Colossians twice in two different sections of this country, um, 19 sessions at both places, 38 total over a period of six days. Um, we feel like we're experts on this book now, just sitting there listening to that, and uh, just was uh, incredible. So today I would like to uh, share with you the very end of the book of Colossians, which I believe in some ways is a biblical mandate for us in how you and I should look at Christian friends and what this should look like in our lives. And so if you're a kid in the room today, you're a student, you're an adult, a man or a woman, uh, the principles that we're going to look at today um, connected to the people who were surrounded the Apostle Paul, I believe that our lives need to be surrounded by these kind of people. The Old Testament really gives us one unique friendship, and that was the friendship with David and Jonathan. And so as you come to the New Testament, there is not a, an example specifically in regard to what does friendship look like, Christian friendship in the church, until you come to the book of Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read it here in just a moment. And you're probably not going to jump out of your chair and go, wow, that is the most exciting stuff I have ever read before. But by the end of today, you will see this is pretty exciting um, because we are going to see um, why you and I should surround ourselves with certain kind of people. So let me just give a little bit of background to Colossians so you can understand it. So as we come to the end of this, you get an idea of this. Two great books that Paul wrote, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. Now, when you come to the book of Ephesians, it really describes the church. What does the church look like? What is God doing within the church? But when you come to the book of Colossians, it really describes the head. So Ephesians describes the body, the church. The book of Colossians describes the head of the body, Jesus Christ. And the theme running all through the book of Colossians is that Christ should be preeminent in everything of our lives. And so Paul talks about, in the first half of Colossians, our position in Christ, what has been done for us, and so who we have become because our life is now hidden in Him. The second part of the book of Colossians defines for us how do we practice this position of what has come to us in salvation. And so we were able to teach this, and it was just, it was just great uh, for me to be able to listen to all of our team uh, be able to um, communicate this. So before we read the text, I want to I just update you a little bit, and I'm going to show you a few pictures from our trip um, here in a moment. So we started this journey uh, to this country in Asia um, about uh, four years ago. It is my sixth time uh, to go here. I think it's Donahoe, it's your sixth as well. And, and so Mr. Freeze has passed us by, and we'll never catch him. But, uh, but we have been there six times now, and we are beginning to see the fruit of what we feel God originally laid in our heart um, for this country. And one of the biggest things I want to say to you is, is that not just those of us who go on this trip, but if you have given uh, to a goat farm, remember the goat farm? We did a goat farm a few years ago, and I'll update you on that here uh, in a minute. But if you've given you have, and you, or you have prayed, um, we want you to sense an ownership of what God is doing in this country that um, He has allowed our church to be a part of. And one of the, I think, the most key things that I like about our partnership there, which has now grown to 30 different churches uh, in, in this country. And so we're, we have been able to, for several years now, train all of their leaders. For two years in a row now, we have taught a letter of, from the Apostle Paul for them to go back to the church and to teach what we have taught them. And um, we are seeing now that they are doing this. And so there is multiplication of our investment in their leadership. But I love the aspect that, that we have ownership of this. We're not going through some outside agency to get there. This is a door that God opened up to our church um, to be able to go there and to have ownership of this. And our DNA of loving God's Word and exalting God um, in His Word is really beginning to really be established in, uh, in a stronger way in these 30 churches. And so, as I said, one of the biggest aspects that we feel is an investment into uh, the leadership of the church. The first place that we were at, we were able to um, pour our lives into um, 100 uh, church leaders from all various aspects of the church. And then the second place that we went to, it was about 75 people that we were able 
to do that at. Interesting, something new that we did this year that we haven't done before, which is a little, uh, just a little nugget of it uh, one day a couple of years ago, but we did children's ministry this time. And by the time, uh, by the time it was all said and done, our last day there, um, Haven had about 132 kids from the community that were there. Their parents had come, Hindu parents, listening to Haven proclaim the gospel. It's amazing uh, that. And so this is, this is something we have wanted to see happen, a development of children's ministry. And, and now it's just kind of they are expecting us to bring people to do that. So if you have a heart for children and you want to love um, kids, uh, we, found, uh, we found this to be true. Uh, during their lunch hour, they can actually leave the campus, uh, elementary age kids, and go home and eat. Um, they were leaving school and coming to the church to be taught, Hindu kids and Buddhist kids. So it was amazing what God was doing, so it was pretty amazing. Uh, church planting, um, as I said, originally there was about 21 churches. There are now 30 churches connected with this, and so we have been a part of uh, the church planting of that. Another aspect that we really sense God had laid in our heart um, uh, several years ago was uh, children's ministry, but specifically with orphans. One of the things that's happening in this country in Asia is the men are having to leave because the economy is so bad, there's no food, you can't take care of your family. So the men have left and they've gone to foreign countries to work and they're sending money back home to be able to take care of their wives and their children. So you have, you have in some villages, literally are just women and children because most of the men have gone and so uh you know that that affects a community uh for men not to be there to give uh leadership and and to be there with their family and to love on their kids and all those things of that nature we're also seeing this that many of the pastors are not able to stay in the pastorate uh, because they can't afford to take care of their family you just don't make um uh, some of the people we know there they make they basically make about three thousand dollars a year um, and so um, they're just scraping by, you know, they have to grow a lot of their own food, but it's a, it's a difficult existence um, there. And so we, several years ago, uh, helped one pastor start a goat farm. And I'll be honest with you, I saw the largest goat I've ever seen in my life. I feel like a spaceship came down and dropped this goat out of, it was an alien goat. It was, I'm telling you, its body was about as tall as this thing right here. I mean, I could have gotten on it and ridden this goat. Um, I wouldn't want to... F- meet this goat in a back alley somewhere. I think it would kill me and stomp on me and I would not win. But uh, So we were able to, several years ago, start a goat farm that is established now. So one of the things that's still a part of the vision of what we want to do there is to continue to see pastors be able to start businesses so that they can take care of their family, they can stay in the... In, and can you imagine in, um, starting a church and you've been the pastor for five years but you can't take care of your family and you've got to leave your church and you've got you to move to another country to get a job. And so we do not want to see that happen. And so we want to help them to be able to start businesses. And so there's a fish farm that's on the agenda that we're going to talk about tomorrow night um, with the elders that potentially we can help with. And so um, a vision that we have is potentially, if we could over the next years to come, help a pastor start a business that could be established that he could stay at the work and continue to develop uh, people there. But back to what I was saying a while ago, um, we had a heart and hope that we would be able to do in in the future orphan ministry. Um, A number of you, I look across this room, you have a heart for orphans, you invest and you do a number of different things. And so one of the leaders there um, has a house uh, that's about half the size as our foyer out there, if you can imagine that. So you've got that and then you've got an upstairs uh, that's with that and uh, he and his wife have two kids of their own and they have taken in eight orphan kids who don't have any parents and so uh, they, he, he, can't, he can't financially take care of them and so one of the things that was in our heart several years ago was could we as a church sponsor specific kids to help meet their education uh, it costs money to educate there um, clothe and feed them and so, so uh, we should have pictures of these kids some of them, uh, their names, uh, and we're going to come to you and say, is anybody here would love to sponsor them and take care of a kid, and we will wire money over there to be able to take care of them, and then maybe down the road uh, you could go with us and actually meet that kid and spend some time with them. And so, again, that's another exciting thing for us in regard to uh, having ownership of what's going on there. So um, we taught, as I said, the book of Colossians twice, and 
And one of the unique things at the very end of this is that Paul uh, gives us insight into the people that were with him. Let me tell you what was going on uh, as Paul wrote this book. Paul's in Rome. He's been in prison because of the preaching of the gospel, and so he's there. And there are eight men that are surrounding Paul as he is in prison. As he's there, he's written a number of different letters that are going back to churches. And so I believe that what Paul closes Colossians with is a biblical mandate of what it looks like to have friendship in the kingdom of God and the kind of people that we should surround ourselves with. So as I said a while ago, if you're a kid, if you're a student, if you're an adult man or woman today, what we're about to look at is really critical for you and I to have these kind of people in our lives. And not only to have these kind of people in our lives, but for you and I to be these kind of people that we're surrounding Paul. So let me, let me give just four statements um, about these men before we read uh, the text. What's interesting about them is that four of the eight men that are with Paul either carried Scripture back to specific churches from Rome, or they are men who actually wrote Scripture. And so one of the, one of the interesting things we learn immediately about those that were in the Apostle Paul's life is they loved the Scripture. They were men. Paul surrounded himself with men who loved the Bible, and they were men who carried actual letters, as I said, or they wrote the Scripture. And so last night I did a little bit of, of math. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. 79 of those 260 chapters are associated with four of the people who are in Rome with Paul while he is in prison. Now, if you add Paul's writings to that, um, 87 specifically, we know for sure Paul wrote 87 chapters of the 260 chapters in the New Testament. Now, I'm one who believes either Paul wrote Hebrews or Paul strongly um, influenced the person who wrote Hebrews. And the reason I believe that is a number of years ago, I looked at key phrases that were all through the book of Hebrews, and there are key phrases in that that are all littered all through all of Paul's writings. And so whether Paul wrote it or not, I believe that if he didn't write it, Whoever he discipled someone who sat under his teaching who wrote that. And so if you count this, Paul's writings with the writings of those that are surrounded Paul, if you add Hebrews with that, 100 chapters of the 260 chapters of the New Testament are associated with people in Rome as Paul is there in prison and they are there supporting him. So what it, what it immediately tells us is this, is that Paul was committed to surrounding his life with those who were committed to establishing the church to be connected to the writing and the teaching and the proclamation of the gospel. So not only were these men committed to that, but Paul was committed to that. And so together, you've got nine guys who are deeply committed to this. And so let me give these four statements um, by way of establishing biblical friendships and the idea of biblical friendships here. And the first one is simply this, is that you and I need to see the security that comes from having faithful gospel friends. We need gospel companions. These men were with Paul as he is in prison. They are sticking with him. And every one of us, just like Paul needed, we need believers who stick by us, When we are in trouble, this is a very godly quality that is connected um, in our lives. I also will say this because it is modeled by Jesus himself. Now, God has called you and I as believers to invest in a lost world to proclaim the gospel to them. But our primary relationships are not lost people. Our primary relationships that we are to surround our lives with are those who are believers. Now, Jesus went into settings where tax collectors and prostitutes were. Did he go into those settings? Yes. Is that where he predominantly spent his time? No, it is not. He spent the majority of his time with 12 men, investing in them, teaching them, preparing them. And so Jesus himself surrounded himself with others who were believers in God. The Apostle Paul models this as well. Paul, who also said this, I've become all things to all men so that I might win some. That didn't mean that he just did a bunch of bad stuff and all that and kind of surrounded himself with people like that. But what we see is the Apostle Paul surrounded himself with believers to support him in the things that he was doing. Yes, yes, he invested his life with people 
who didn't know Jesus, but his predominant relationship was lived among believers. And so we, you and I need the security of faithful friends. Secondly, the Apostle Paul knew this, and we need to know it as well. People are the greatest resource in the church. It's not money. It's not money. It's not better facilities. It's not a better location. The greatest resource in the church are people. It is people. And Paul knew this, and so that's why he surrounded himself with people that he would pour into, and these people were people who took the gospel other places as well. St. Augustine said this, Without God, we cannot, indicating we cannot do anything without the leadership of God. But then he also said this, Without us, God will not. And what he meant by that was, God's purpose and plan is to use people like you and I to extend the kingdom by proclaiming who Jesus is and being in relationship with one another. And so Paul establishes with these eight guys a great security of faithful friends, gospel companions. Secondly, he understood that people were the greatest resource in the church. And thirdly, the solo life, the isolated life, is not the life of the Christian, and it's not the life of the minister. We surround ourselves with other people. We do not do this on our own. Paul knew that he couldn't do this on his own. Listen to what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone, and when he falls, he has not another to lift him up. And so Paul got this. When you read the book of Acts, Paul is never by himself except in the city of Athens. It's the only time Paul is by himself, and the indication there is he's not by himself in Athens for very long. Every other place, Paul is surrounded with other believers in his life. And lastly, in, in regard to this, is we must surround ourselves with prison friends. I call them prison friends. The circumstances in which Paul was writing the letter of Colossians was prison. And back in those days, it was always dangerous to be a prisoner's friend because sometimes it would be guilty by association. But Paul had eight men that were standing by him. Now, one of the things before we read the text is I want to show a couple of pictures that kind of highlight and indicate um, what I believe Paul and his friends were doing and what I believe that we as a church are doing in this particular country. And so um, the last morning there, um, I got up because I needed more door pictures because I don't have enough door pictures. And so I got 513 new door pictures this this trip that I've never had before, and so I'm up to about 6,000 doors from all over the world. If you like doors, you can come to my house, and we will look at pictures uh, uh, literally for a week. It would probably take us to do that. But I got up early um, the last day that we were there, went into the heart of the city, um, and was there by the time the sun came up, and I stumbled uh, across this. This is a Hindu god. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a blank, black uh, made out of some kind of stone, and the, the worshipers dip their fingers in this paint, and they go up and they, they wipe it and touch um, that, and they, they chant something and say something, and they walk away. And so I took this picture, and then I stood there, I videoed some of it as well, and I stood there, and my heart was just broken. You know, when you read the book of Colossians, the, the, originally the gospel went into a world that was full of idol worship. You had Greek and Roman gods, temples literally all over. We go to a country that is literally full of that kind of thing still today. Here we are 2,000 years later, and it, and it dominates that. And my heart was broken because as those people went up and they, they, they had to watch this, they had to color their God because their God is dark. Our God is light. In Him there is no darkness. This God cannot speak to them. He cannot feel that they are touching them. He can't hear their chants. He doesn't even know that they are near because, see, he was made, that God was made in a factory somewhere. Only our God is alive. Only our God is living. Chris, go to the next one. So these are Buddhists, and on these spinning wheels are words of Buddha, and you spin them, and they're all over the city, the capital city, and literally all over the country. And you spin the words because the faster you spin them and the more you spin them, you get good karma and good things will come your way. But the problem with that is, is nothing is coming that way but darkness. 
You see, our God, you don't have to, his, his word doesn't have to be spun. His word is alive and active. It pierces. It doesn't need our help to do its work. We proclaim it. God does the work. And so the sadness comes in is there, there's a false hope that's connected to Buddha's words and Buddha's writings and spinning those around, and it will never result in anything. The last picture I want to show you is this one. Uh, we went to a place. These are golden Buddhas, and they are very impressive to look at. I mean, pretty. Um, I don't know if it's real gold or not, but they are really nice. But um, you know what they have to do to these gods? Because the capital city there is the dirtiest place I've ever been in my life. These gods can't clean themselves. You know, you know what they have to have? They have to have people climb up on them to clean them. We go to some parts in the city, and there's gods in there, and there's monkeys that go in there, and they stand on the god and poop on their god. And so people have to come through and clean up their god. Our god is holy and righteous in and of himself. He is so pure. He is so perfect. He is so awesome. And so God's call upon us, just want to remind us, that as friends together, we unite together to take the gospel to dark places who don't understand that there's a God whose word is alive, that there's a God who's holy and righteous. And when I stood behind these Buddhas, I thought of Exodus chapter 34 where Moses said to God, I want to see you, I want to see your face. And God says, you can't see my face, but I'll let you see my backside. And Moses got to see his backside, and it was so awesome that Moses' head lit up. And here we're standing behind these gods and the backside of these gods because they've been made, the pieces of these gods have been made somewhere. They can't do anything. They can't exude some kind of glory and some kind of holiness. And, and so, so I just I wanted to, to show these to us this morning because what the Apostle Paul and his friends are doing and what you and I need to be doing is you and I need to be investing in our world and being united with one another, centered around the hope of the gospel that you and I would be deeply connected um, to him. All right, now you're going to get nervous. We're going to read the Bible now, okay? Um, and I'm going to talk about eight guys. And I can do it. I'm going to get it done, Paul Davis. We're going to get it done shortly. All right, let's read. Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Again, Paul is in Rome, in prison. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. In Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, for they, they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. And I say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. So what I want to do, I just want to take a few moments, and I want to define for us the kind of friends you and I need to have in our lives. These are the kind of people we ought to be in other people's lives as well. And So let's look at Tychicus. Don't name your kid Tychicus. <clears throat> but Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 8, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. Let me tell you about Tychicus. Tychicus is a man with a message. He had two things that he was going to do. So... Epaphras, who we believe is the pastor of the Colossian church, has gone to Rome to say, hey, listen, 
there's this teaching that's going on, and it's leading people in the church astray. And so Epaphras has gone to Rome to talk to Paul to say, what do we do about this? How do we address what's happening and taking place? So Paul takes out his pen, and he writes this letter that's come to us called Colossians. It's given to Tychicus. Tychicus also, from what we understand from Ephesians chapter 6, is carrying two letters from Rome back to two different cities. He's carrying the letter of Ephesians back to Ephesus, and he's carrying the letter of Colossians to the city of Colossae. He is a man, watch this, whom Paul is trusting to carry precious, precious uh, Scripture. Now, what if Tychicus along the way had decided, oh gosh, it's a long journey, I don't want to really get there, I'm going to take my time, I'm going to maybe start a business along the way, or I like this city, I'm going to stay there. He was a man with a message, which meant he was a man with a mission, and he knew he needed to get the letter back to Colossae so that the leaders there could address the heresy that was being proclaimed in the church. We also know about him that likely he was the guy in Acts 20 verse 4 who was carrying... Um, uh, the offering that had been gathered back to the Jerusalem church that needed some help uh, during that time. So, so here's what we learned about Tychicus. He was a man you could trust with money. He was a man you could trust with letters from Paul. And he was a man who, when he got back, was not only just going to share what Paul had written, but, but it says there, Paul says, that he's also going to tell you all the stuff that's been going on in our lives. He was going to kind of complete the story that was beyond the written text of this letter, and he was going to communicate that to the people there. Now, hear this. Every one of us in this room today, Paul, the dominant, dominant person outside of Christ in the New Testament, surrounded himself, and the first person he surrounded himself was with a man that he could trust to carry the sacredness of letters that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we ought to surround ourselves with people, men and women, boys and girls, students, with people who value the written text of Scripture. That's the kind of friends that you and I have. So that when we get together, there's conversation naturally about that. So Tychicus was a man with a message and a man of encouragement, Paul says there at the very end, that, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He was also a man of encouragement. Let's look at the next guy. Look at verse 9. And with Tychicus was another guy traveling with him, and he likely was carrying a letter that had everything to do with his life. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, and they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Oh, I got Bible trivia right here. Those of you who went to on the mission trip, y'all can't answer this. There's a letter that's all about Onesimus. Does anybody know what that letter is in the New Testament? Philemon. It's a one-page letter. It's written by Paul. Let me tell you the story. I love the way God works. I love the way God works. So Onesimus was a slave, and he had a master whose name was Philemon. Well, one day, it, it kind of indicated in the letter of Philemon that Paul writes and gives to Onesimus to take back with him to Colossae, where he was from, that he must have stolen something from Philemon. So he leaves Colossae. He steals something from Philemon. He wanders away. Guess where he ends up? He ends up somewhere in the Roman kingdom or maybe Rome, and he gets arrested, and he gets put in prison in Rome. Guess who's in prison in Rome? Paul. So he gets in prison. He's run away from his master. He's a thief. He's been arrested for something along the way. He gets put in prison. Paul calls him. Paul says, I, I am his spiritual father. And so Paul probably leads Onesimus to Christ in a Roman prison. Is that not just like God? Just take some ragtag guy who's run away and he's, he's lost and, and now he's in prison and he leads him. And now watch what Paul does. Paul learns Onesimus' story. Onesimus, what's the story? What did you do? Well, I stole from my master and I ran away. But now Onesimus has come to faith in Christ. And Paul doesn't say this to Onesimus. He doesn't say, okay, well, you've got your life right with God. You don't need to get your life right with man. So just join me and stay here. No, what Paul, what, you know what Paul does? He takes out 
a scroll, and he writes a letter to Philemon, and he hands it to Onesimus and says, hey, bud, you're going with Tychicus. He's got the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Colossae, and you're going to carry the letter back to your master, Philemon, and you're going to give it to him, and I'm pleading with him that now he knows that you're not just a slave, but you're his brother in Christ, and he needs to forgive you. You see, Paul didn't just say, okay, as long as you're right with God, that's okay. Paul said, no, hey, you've got to get right with your man, fellow man. You've got, you got to get right. And so he sends him back. And so here you've got two guys traveling together from Rome back to Colossae with three letters of the Bible. And they're holding the original manuscripts, and you and I are holding them in our laps today or on our smart tablets and phones. And they carried these original letters back. You see, Onesimus is a man with a past who's now become loyal. Did you notice what Paul said about him? And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. You know what God does when he changes our lives? He changes our past and he gives us a hope for the future. Let's look at the third guy, Aristarchus. I would advise you to not name your kid his name either. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you. Where is Aristarchus living? Okay, come on, people, think. I know, I know you're turkey ham, hangover. Come on, let's go. If he's a fellow prisoner, where is he? He's in Rome, fellow prisoner with Paul. So he is with Paul. As a matter of fact, if you look at Aristarchus in the Bible, he kind of is with Paul a lot in prison. He is a man with a devoted heart to the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine? Here's how it started off with Aristarchus. He's traveling around with Paul. They go to Ephesus, and in Acts 19 it says this, 28 and following. And when they heard this, they were enraged, the citizens of Ephesus, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions, companions in travel. So he gets arrested in Ephesus with Paul. Later in Acts chapter 27, Paul's going from Israel all the way to Rome for his trial. Do you remember he has a shipwreck and they're out floating in the ocean for a few days? Guess who's also floating in the ocean with Paul? Aristarchus. He's on that same ship. We also know this, that he is called here. We see this, that, that he, is, he is someone who is a fellow prisoner of Paul. He's somebody who stayed by the Apostle Paul. He's a man with a devoted heart. And every one of us need people with devoted hearts who are going to stick by us. You ever mess up? Boy, I do. <laughs> I live with me. I know me well. And I need people who are willing in the midst of my faults to love me anyway. And that's so important. All right, let's look at the fourth guy. Have you ever needed a second chance in your life? John Mark got one. He's the man of the second chance. Second part of verse 10 says, And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions... If he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, who is the writer of the Gospel of Mark, was with Paul in Rome when he wrote the letter to the Colossians and the Ephesians. But there was a time 12 years before where Paul didn't want to have anything to do with John Mark. See, Paul and Barnabas had been sent out of the church of Antioch to go to Asia Minor, and they were establishing churches. About halfway through the first missionary journey, we don't know why, John Mark decided, uh, whatever the case may be. He, went, he was homesick, wanted to see his mommy. He was young. Whatever the case may be, he left the missionary team, and he went home. Well, a little bit later in Acts chapter 15, they have this big Jerusalem council where they're dealing with doctrinal things, important things that had come up with, with the church. And after that was over, Paul and Barnabas were going to go out on the second missionary journey. Barnabas, whose cousin was John Mark, he now was a little bit older, maybe a few years had gone by. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, and the Apostle Paul did this. Uh-uh, no way. I'm not bringing Quitter Boy with us. He's not coming with us. And, and there arose such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that Paul and Barnabas split ways, and, and Paul took Silas with him, and Barnabas and John Mark went somewhere else. But when you come to Paul's in Rome now, I love this. Love this. Paul affirms John Mark. 
You see, something had changed. There had been a reconciliation at some particular point in time with Paul and John Mark. And I've often wondered, because I've had to meditate on this quite a bit, because I taught it there and was preparing to share it here. I wonder, I wonder if Paul and John Mark hadn't reconciled with the Gospel of Mark ever been written. Because sometimes somebody powerful like the Apostle Paul, with his opinion of you and his thought of you and kind of had you under his thumb, it could crush somebody spiritually, potentially. But at some point in time, these guys that were separated got reunited. As a matter of fact, we'll read here in a moment in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Paul says some beautiful words about John Mark. And the point is simply this. I just want to say to you and I, do not write people off who may give up in the Christian faith for a little bit and they may turn their back and they may wander away and then eventually just pray for them as you see them, encourage them because the, I, I guarantee in this room there could probably be 15 or 20 of us stand up and say, yeah, for a while I walked away. But I came back and it was because there were people praying for me and encouraging me. So I want to say in the room today, let's not give up on people because here's John Mark. Eventually, you know what he did, right? He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. A guy who gave up on the first mission trip and wanted to go home wrote a gospel. There's another guy, and I don't know if I'd want my name to be called Jesus, but he was called Jesus Justice. So verse 11 says, And Jesus, who is called Justice, um, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice were Christian Jews, the only Christian Jews that were standing with Paul in Rome. Nobody else was, um, but they were standing with him. And so these three men alone uh, we're standing in the midst of much opposition from Jewish leaders toward Paul. And I love what it says here. They have been, including Jesus' justice, we don't know anything about him other than this right here. They have been a comfort to me. This word comfort in the Greek here is our English word paragoric. Now, the word paragoric is something you don't want. It's medicine to take for diarrhea. And so, um, but way back in the day, that was not what it was for. Here's what it meant. It meant somebody who was so soothing by the way they lived their lives that they were like a medicine to your soul and they soothe your soul. And that's what Paul is saying about this guy, Jesus Justice. He's the kind of guy in your life that when he steps into your life, he loves you, he prays for you, he encourages you. He's the kind who soothes your soul. Now, I'm going to brag on somebody in the room just for a moment because there's somebody in the room who is this to me. There are other people, but this one, this person really is this in my life. It's hard being a pastor. Um, I don't want, I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes on Monday morning, I'm ready to throw in the towel and be done, and, and, and I'm just I'm done, or maybe on a Thursday I want to do that. And Mark Verlander keeps me in this job a lot of times. He is, he is a soothing medicine when my heart is down and reminds me that it's worth it to continue in the battle. Listen, everybody in this room, we need a Jesus justice in our life. Now, most of us, our problem is the reason we don't have these kind of people in our life is because we build these big walls and we don't let anybody in. And maybe today... Learning from the Apostle Paul, it's not pride that we need, it's deep humility. It's just an admission that says this, I, I love Jesus with all my heart, but I'm also at the same time can be really, really weak. And I need support and I need people around me. And so Paul had Jesus' justice, someone who soothed his soul. All right, let's look at the sixth guy, verse 12 and 13. Epaphras a man of single-minded passion for prayer. So verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, he's from Colossae, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, this is why he's struggling, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, we believe that likely, here's what happened. Paul goes to Ephesus. He leads people there. He stays a couple of years. 
Likely, Epaphras goes to Colossae, it's 100 miles away, and he shares the gospel in Colossae, and people in Colossae come to faith, and the church is started. We know that, according to uh, Colossians 2, verse 1, Paul had never met the Colossian church. He had never met them. And so, Epaphras likely is the one who started the church in Colossae by going there and evangelizing. And so, now, he's probably the pastor of the Colossian church. This heresy's come up. He doesn't really know what to do. So, he travels all the way to Rome to where Paul is to ask Paul, hey, what do we do to combat this? And so, Paul writes the letter, all of these Christ, Christ is preeminent, all these things throughout the letter, Epaphras. Tychicus takes the letter, goes back to Colossae. Epaphras stays, now watch this, in Rome with Paul. Well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but 2,000 years ago, you couldn't FaceTime, you couldn't email, you couldn't pick up a phone and call, you couldn't go and see anybody. So with all this distance and all this difficulty of getting somewhere, what could you do for the people that you deeply loved? Well, you did what Epaphras did. And this is what he did. This is how he spent his life. In Rome, with Paul in prison, praying on his knees. And it says there, struggling in his prayers. This word struggling in his prayers is a word that means this. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9 where he describes the athlete who's running. Do you not know that all the runners run in a race and they run to win, um, run in such a way to win? And, and, and that picture of the, the, the fighting and the wrestling of the runner, and that's what Epaphras did. He couldn't go back to the church. Here's the shepherd in Rome, and he loved his people. And he couldn't go to them right then because he was being trained by Paul to be ready to go back and combat this. And what did he do? He just got on his knees and he prayed. He prayed. I tell you what I need in my life is people praying for me. And you know what you need in your life? You need people praying for you. On their knees, fighting the fight, wrestling for the good of the gospel. And Epaphras was a man of single-minded passion for prayer. Let's look at the seventh guy. This guy I've really grown to love over the last several years. Look at the last or the first part of verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Paul deeply cared about Luke. Luke was a man who came to be a significant part of Paul's inner circle. Uh, they did ministry together. They traveled thousands and thousands of miles together. Uh, Luke loved the church, loved Jesus as much as what Paul did. And Luke had a great impact upon Paul's life. If your life today in the room has been impacted by Paul, I would say to you, you need to say thank you to Luke. He was Paul's likely personal physician and kept Paul alive ministering to him through a lot of different things. And I think I, I communicated this several weeks ago, but let me just remind you and I. Listen, listen, what, listen what Paul describes his life. Um, he, he's talked about, and let me just go to it because I didn't put it all there. I'm going to go to it. So listen to what Paul says here about his life. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, I have this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Now, Paul went through a lot because of his love of the gospel. Now watch this. Five times 40, less one. Five times, times 39, a lot of lashes. And what they would do is they would tie you like this and strip your back, and they would take a whip, and they would whip you. And according to Jewish law, you couldn't go over 40, and it just lashed the back of Paul. First time that happens, you're just bleeding. And then it heals, and it's what? Scar tissue. Well, the next time you beat, and you're just ripping open scar tissue that eventually becomes scar tissue. And I'd imagine the Apostle Paul's back, there wasn't any flesh like our back at all. 
Well, guess who was there? Guess who was there ministering to Paul and bringing healing to his life all the way through? Luke. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to close there. 2 Timothy 4. Go to your right, a few books. Luke also was a man of biblical words. He went through all those things as well, those danger in the sea, danger in the city, faithful friend of Paul. I believe Paul had two Roman imprisonments, and I think 2 Timothy was written from the second one. Because what he writes there is different than what he writes in Colossians. It's just different. There's nobody around him anymore, and he speaks of different people. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also who have loved his appearing. Now look at 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. And look at John Mark again. And get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Look at 12. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Traos, and also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now let me just wind up our time this morning here. Here's Luke. Everybody needs a Luke. Or a Lukeette, whatever you need in your life. Everybody's gone. Paul knows I'm about to die. Nero's persecution has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. He knows it's about over. He says the words, I've finished the race. It's about over. There's not, not really anything else I'm going to be able to do. It's about over for me. And one person remained, and it was Luke. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody fled and rejected the gospel. It doesn't mean that at all. But Luke stayed until the very end to continue to minister to his faithful friend. Luke is a man of faithful, faithful companionship. By the way, he's also a man of Scripture. He wrote 52 chapters of the Bible, Luke did. If you don't think Paul had a significant influence on Luke's life, gosh, just know that he did. And we know that Luke had a tremendous influence upon Paul. But we do know this, according to church tradition, that one day... Paul was led out of his prison cell and his head was put on a block of wood and they raised up a sword and they brought it down and they beheaded the Apostle Paul. And only Luke is there with him. And most likely, Luke is the one who buries the Apostle Paul's to make sure his body is taken care of. And I've often thought about this. I wonder what it must have been like for Luke to carry the body, the headless body of his faithful friend, the Apostle Paul. You see, I believe what we've just looked at here is a definition of what the church ought to look like and what our relationships in our lives ought to look like. These are the kind of people that our lives need to be surrounded with. But here's a reality, is that some of us will either be or we will have a Demas in our lives. See, Demas was faithful with Paul during the first missionary journey. He seems to have been around in the second missionary journey. But as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 there, Demas found something in Thessalonica that was way better than the gospel. And he deserted and fell in love with the world. And I just want to remind us as believers today, one of the heartaches of our lives is our close Christian friends who sometimes turn their backs on the gospel to not return. And it's heartbreaking. And sometimes we'll have a Demas in our lives. But we shouldn't let a Demas in our lives lead us to forget of the great reality that God calls us to surround ourselves 
with people. So here's the application today. If you want these kind of people in your life, you've got to put the walls down. And you've got to let people in. Listen, I know you. You know me. We're all messed up. We are. And we need one another to support us and encourage us and remind us to keep going in faithfulness. I need it. You need it. The person next to you needs it. Your spouse needs it. We all need it. And so men and women, students, boys and girls, we need to surround ourselves with people who are deeply committed. All right, look at 15. I know I said, famous last, don't ever believe a pastor who says these are the last words, okay, anyway, so. But these really are the last words. Look at 15. Yeah, I should get there. Here we are. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, who, by the way, we don't know what that letter is. It was lost. It wasn't important enough to keep around and to be included. But there was a letter at one point in time that Paul wrote to the church in Laodicea. Verse 17, and say to Archippus... See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. And here's what I want to close with. When this letter got to Colossae, the word from Tychicus was not, go get the band together, we need to have a worship night. It wasn't, hey, let's start a men's and women's ministry. It wasn't, let's market the church better in our city. It wasn't, hey, get a better location. It wasn't, plan a camp, plan a retreat. Here's what the word that got there, the last thing that they read there, it said this, read this letter, read this letter, read this letter, and then take it to Laodicea and have them read it, have them read it, have them read it. And the letter that I sent to Laodicea, you get it from them and you bring it back and you read it and you read it. And I think the council of God's word here as Colossians 4 closes is this. The ultimate mark of our friendships is going to be are we committed to read entire life to the scriptures. So Paul describes seven gospel friends, eight at the time. Demas eventually flames out. Seven gospel friends who love the word and he tells them, read, 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 read the Scripture. That's God's call. Isn't that a beautiful way to end a letter defining friendship of what that looks like for us? Let's pray.